0: Today's scripture reading will be from Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 30. Hear now God's word. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We sang the flute for you you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Pray with me today. Father, what beautiful words from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ even as he proclaims the displeasure of God upon all unbelief, he reveals to us the gentle heart of a loving God who says to us, Come, come with your burdens of guilt and shame and sin and cast them upon me and I will bear them for you and I will give you rest. Father, we praise you for the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. And we ask this morning that as we continue in our study of the book of Acts and this great chapter that articulates the gospel for us, that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. God, that you would give us confidence in the gentleness and the loving kindness of our great Savior and the great Shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ. Help us to see Him as He is, and help us to abide in Him, and help us to rest confidently in Him, casting all of our cares on the One who cares for us and has cared for us so much. Father, may we be satisfied in Christ Jesus. God, as we come to Your Word this morning, we ask that the words of my mouth, that the prayers of our hearts, that the meditations of our hearts upon your word this morning would be pleasing in your sight this morning. We ask all of these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, turn with me to Acts 15 once again this morning. We're going to be focusing in again on the first 11 verses, but especially on verses 10 and 11 today, as we continue on in our study of this chapter, which we're going to continue to do for the next couple of weeks, also for the rest of October, since in God's good providence, we are in this particular chapter in the month of October, because of October, of course, is the month when we like to celebrate the great historical events of the Protestant Reformation from the 16th century, when God worked powerfully in His church to protect His church from error, and to purify His church from corruption, and to preserve His church in holiness for generations to come. Specifically, October 31st is the day that we highlight, the eve of the church holiday, All Saints Day. That was the day when Christians would celebrate and and give praise to God for preserving his people who had passed from this world into the next and lived in the eternal glories of heaven and reigned with him eternally. On the eve of All Saints Day, October 31st in the year 1517, Martin Luther very famously wrote up a series of 95 statements of dispute against many of the unscriptural and ungodly practices that were going on in the church during the Middle Ages, and he nailed that document to the door of the University at Wittenberg where he was a professor of moral theology, ethics. And by doing that, he was sort of publicizing his disputes with many of the teachings and traditions that had come to characterize the church of God, but that were radically out of step with the Word of God. And when he did that, that was kind of like a match being lit in what was already a powder keg of controversy, as many, many people had for years and years already come to be concerned with what was being taught and what was being done in the church Many, many voices were already being raised concerning the need for change to be brought to the church, concerning the need for reform to be brought to the church in the Middle Ages. And one of the most central ways in which reform was desperately needed in the teaching and practice of the church at that time, which which was hinted at in those 95 theses of dispute that Luther nailed to the Wittenberg door, had to do with the very same gospel issues that were being debated at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. The heart of the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And so I think it's providential that we've come to this chapter here in this month of October, and I want for us to spend the whole month in it and glean as much as we can from it these next few weeks. In Luther's day... In the 16th century, the church had come to teach that salvation from sin, that, that, that justification before God required some merit on our part. They taught that God could not accept us as righteous on the basis of someone else's righteousness, it had to be a righteousness that was, that was inherent, intrinsic to our own lives and our own beings, whether we earned it by way of doing good works, or if God, God could infuse it into us from sort of a storehouse that they taught existed of merit that the church taught that God had where, where merit could be purchased by giving money to the church of course. And then they'd write you a little certificate called an indulgence and say, well, great, because you donated so much to the church, you get so much merit, and that, that makes you closer to being acceptable to God. And the church was cleaning up on that racket, because it was easy to make people feel guilty, and then promise to absolve their guilt through financial donations. That was a really, really lucrative deal. Good deal for the church, Right? Martin Luther didn't think it was such a good deal. And this practice, the church called it selling indulgences, where, whereby you could lessen your, your guilt, your time in purgatory. They taught that you had to go to this made-up place called purgatory. It's not in the Bible anywhere, but you've got to go there after you die because, because you can't buy enough merit and you can't do enough good works to be holy enough before God. So you've got to go to purgatory for maybe millions of years and burn off all the rest of your guilt but you can shorten your time there if you buy indulgences. And if Aunt Sally went there before you and she's burning away in purgatory, you can lessen her time or buy her out of there if you give enough money to the church. They were cleaning up. And so the bottom line, see, of of all of this teaching was that they believed and they taught that salvation had to be merited personally from God. And in the Middle Ages, you could see the massive burden that that placed upon people. And Martin Luther came to recognize how corrupt all of that was and that system had become and the church had become in exploiting poor people through this practice of selling merit through these indulgences. He came to realize how bankrupt the church's understanding of the gospel really was. And he came to understand from the word of God what the true heart of the gospel really was, which is that the righteousness that God demands for us to be justified, for us to be called righteous by God, can never come from us. The righteousness that God requires, God himself supplies through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It's it's Christ's righteousness. It's the righteousness that comes from God, like Paul says in Philippians. Not our own righteousness, which is the only basis of our being perfectly acceptable to God. And that righteousness of God only comes to us through faith alone. We can't buy it and we can't earn it And that was the same bottom line issue, see, that Paul and Peter and James and the apostles in Jerusalem were confronting here in Acts chapter 15, right? The circumstance was different, of course. It was 1,500 years earlier, but the core issue was the same. Does salvation, does justification come by faith alone? Or does being made right with the Holy God have to be personally merited, Does it require for people to have a righteousness of their own? Or does God supply all of the cleansing righteousness that is necessary in His only begotten Son and through faith alone in His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ alone? In Acts 15, in the early days of the church, it was circumcision and adherence to. The Old Testament laws of Moses, including the dietary laws, that's what the party of the Pharisees were insisting was necessary, was prerequisite in order for Gentiles to be saved. And what we saw last week was that the heart of their error in insisting on that was that they still failed miserably to understand the human heart in the way that God understands it. So they were believers in Jesus in some way, but they were still plagued by the old thinking of the Pharisees which Jesus had confronted, which Jesus had condemned so much in the Gospels. I mean, sure, the Pharisees were really, really good at obeying God's law. Too good, right? In fact, as we saw last week, because in order to make sure that they never broke God's law, they added all kinds of extra regulations around it, like hedges, like layers of of insulation... And then they prided themselves on how precisely they were keeping all of the regulations. But all of that obedience, all of that compliance was just outward, was just external. And on the inside where it really mattered in their hearts, they were full of pride and greed and hypocrisy. And they were completely bereft of any love for God and any love for others, which is where true obedience that honors God, that pleases God, that glorifies God. That's where it comes from. It comes from a heart that loves God and loves like God loves. God is not impressed, we saw last time, with outward compliance that is not the manifestation of an inward love for God and for other people. God knows the heart, we saw last week. And anything fallen human being who truly knows the heart as God does knows that's exactly why it's impossible to merit our own justification and salvation by doing good works. Because we'll never ever do enough. But more importantly because anything that sinners do out of hearts that are desperately wicked and hard and cold towards God and dead in sin, none of it pleases God anyways. In the slightest. And so what's needed are new hearts. What's needed is what only God Himself, by His own divine, supernatural initiative and and work, only what God Himself can do. Today, like I said, we're going to focus in on verses 10 and 11 here of Acts 15 and take a close look at these words of Peter's. In fact, they're, they're the last words that Peter is recorded to have spoken in the book of Acts. And so that alone should make these last words of Peter noteworthy to us. Look at what he says, particularly in verse 10, as he's confronting the party of the Pharisees. Peter says, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Two indictments that Peter gives. You're putting God to the test. And you're putting an unbearable yoke on the disciples, the Gentile followers of Jesus. Now I want to focus in on those two specific indictments. What do those things mean? And why are they important for us to understand? That's what I want us to, to get at here today. Notice there in verse 10 that those two indictments are linked, aren't they? You see the word by in between them. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? That's a really good translation of the Greek because the Greek uses a grammatical construct called... You don't need to remember this. There won't be a quiz... Unless you're Aiden, Aiden might be taking Greek soon and he's going to need to know what an ep-exegetic infinitive is. That's what this is. Don't worry about it. It just means that it's a, it's a grammatical construct that's linking these two phrases in a specific way that shows that placing a yoke on the Gentile's neck is the way in which the party of the Pharisees are putting God to the test. Now bear that in mind as we continue to Look at what both of these things mean. First of all, what does Peter mean when he says that these people are putting God to the test? What does it mean to put God to the test? Well, the people that Peter said that to, the party of the Pharisees, they would have understood exactly what Peter meant, because they were well-versed and understood and had memorized much of the Old Testament Scriptures where God says that His people had done exactly that, they had put Him to the test. One of the places where God says that and warns us not to do that is Psalm 95, which is why I had Nick read that psalm at the beginning of the service this morning. Don't put God to the test like they did back in Meribah and Massah. We're going to understand what happened there. And how they put God to the test and why that's important. But first, Peter himself had used this phrase already in the book of Acts back in chapter 5. Do you remember? In the incident with Ananias and Sapphira. They were the ones who saw Barnabas sell a piece of property and give all of the proceeds to the church for the caring of the poor. And, and the church lavished all this praise on Barnabas and, and gave him a, a, a place of prominence in the church and they got jealous of that. And so they went and sold a piece of their property and gave some of it to the poor but, but told the church that they had given all of it. And so they had been dishonest and they had been greedy. See, right? Not only had they lied, but this act of supposed kindness was spoiled by their greedy motives and all of it was done in the church. And so instead of doing things to glorify God and to to love the people of God, Ananias and Sapphira were, were using God's church as a stage to try and glorify themselves. That happens a lot, doesn't it? And Peter said to them in Acts chapter 5 and verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? And so what that means is to do something that is contrary to God's revealed will in a way that that tests if He's going to bring about the deserved consequences. I'm going to do this because nobody's going to know and God's not really going to do anything to me for it, right? And what I have to gain from it is greater than whatever I might have to lose. Boy, were they wrong. (laughs) Testing God means doing something that is against His will in order to see if He's going to bring about the consequences. We have an idiom, right? In English, we say testing the waters, which means to try to gauge the reaction of someone how are they going to respond how are they going to react if i if i do this and sometimes there's a negative connotation with it right sometimes sometimes parents talk about young children testing the waters with them sort of trying to see how much they can get away with before mom and dad bring out the rod of discipline trying to judge whether the response to whatever they're doing is going to be worth enduring for the sake of whatever it is that they want to do, right? That's similar to what the Bible is describing. At the heart of of testing God is a self-willed spirit, see? A spirit that is not motivated by bringing pleasure and glory to God, but is primarily and predominantly motivated by getting what I want first. So, maybe it's going to be willing to obey God some, but only if obedience isn't too costly. And only if obedience comes with some benefit that's greater than whatever benefit I think I'm going to get by disobeying. This is putting God to the test. What's in it for me is the dominant attitude of the Spirit. If God says, do this, don't do that, This spirit says, well, what's in it for me if I do? And what are you going to do about it if I don't? And then it weighs. And then it chooses based on self-will. Instead of saying, yes, Lord, whatever you say, your will be done. Instead of saying, whatever God says goes because he's God. Right? The godly spirit says what God commands is right and good and what God forbids is wrong and bad and I'm going to do what's right and I'm not going to do what's wrong regardless of the reward or regardless of the cost or consequence. Because the godly spirit is not self-willed. It's governed and motivated by the will of God. But when the fleshly self-willed spirit encounters the will of God, it's not motivated to obey so that God will be pleased and honored and glorified. It's motivated to test whether obedience will be worth it. See? And whether the consequences of disobedience are bad enough to give up whatever self wants. And God knows the heart. And so like we saw last week, He sees past the outward compliance. He understands how the heart, how the inner spirit is motivated in actuality. And so in God's word, there are several critical places where this sinful human tendency to put God to the test are exposed. And those places are what Peter's thinking about here. When he diagnoses this kind of spirit in the party of the Pharisees. And the big one, the big place in the Old Testament that typifies this spirit of testing God is all the way back in the book of Exodus and chapter 17. You can turn there if you want. Exodus, keep your thumb in Acts 15. Turn back to Exodus chapter 17. Second book in your Bible, of course. Chapter 17. The book of Exodus, of course, chronicles the great mercy of God, the great awesome power of God as He delivered His people, the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, as He delivered them from, from brutal, harsh slavery that, had, that they'd been enduring for 400 years in Egypt. And God empowered Moses, remember, to come and confront the Pharaoh and demand that the people be set free. And through Moses, God executed a, a series of ten plagues against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians until Pharaoh finally capitulated and let the Israelites go free. But of course, Pharaoh's own heart was self willed, wasn't it? Pharaoh didn't all of a sudden become a, a God fearing man who wanted nothing more than to glorify and, and please the God of heaven. No, Pharaoh wanted what he wanted and Pharaoh only relented in order to spare himself more consequences for resisting God's will. So Pharaoh had been testing God all throughout the ten plagues. His heart hadn't changed in actuality when he finally agreed to let the Israelites go and that's why he ended up chasing them into the wilderness in order to get them back and that's why he ended up being destroyed by God in the Red Sea. And after that, of course, God led his people towards the Promised Land, appearing before them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and miraculously providing for them all along the way. In chapter 16, Moses tells all about how God caused manna to miraculously rain down from heaven every morning so that even out there in the desolation of the wilderness, the whole company of the people of Israel, about two million of them, had plenty to eat always. All they had to do was just gather it up off the ground each morning. God provided it all freely. And so here now in chapter 17 of Exodus, that's all the background of all the amazing grace, right? All the mercy of God, right? Look what God has done. You you should be rejoicing, right? You should trust God. You should be confident and believing that God cares for you and will supply your every need, right? They'd seen, they'd experienced, they were experiencing on a daily basis all of the great mercy and provision of God when they got to this place called Rephidim, Exodus 17, verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. So, what did these people who had seen and experienced and received so freely So much grace, so much mercy, so much deliverance, so much miraculous blessing and providence from the hand of God. What did they do when they got to Rephidim and there was no water there? Well, they did what we all do, right? As as we are people who have received massive grace from God, amazing grace, eternal grace, saving grace. And, And we've received myriad mercies that are new every morning from the hand of our God who is sovereign and who is good and who gives us air to breathe and sun to bask in and rain to grow our crops and answers our prayers, right? What do we do who have been and, and are given so much by our merciful, kind and sovereign God? What do we do when we come to the Rephidims of our lives? When we get to the places where there's a need And we aren't sure how that need's going to get met. When we get to places where things are hard and painful and scary and uncertain and unpleasant, what do we do, right? We... Well, obviously, we instinctively turn to the God who glorified Himself so often by giving us so much mercy, and we say to Him, God, I trust You implicitly and completely, have mercy and hear hear my prayers and and grant to me whatever glorifies You the most, right? That's what we always do, 100% of the time, instinctively, every time, right? Because our hearts are always pervasively governed by the will of God and by His glory and the, the reality of His sovereign goodness. Right? So, all too often, the, the Rephidim's of our lives dredge up the vestiges of the self-willed spirit that, that remain in us. And we do exactly what the people of Israel did in Exodus 17 when they got to Rephidim. Verse 2, they quarreled with Moses. They bickered They complained, they fought against Moses, God's servant, they demanded, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you put God to the test? There's our word, test. That's the word that Peter indicted the party of the Pharisees with in Acts 15 verse 10. And this is the primary place in Scripture that he had in mind. Verse 3 of Exodus 17. But the people thirsted there for water, and when they grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us out of Egypt? Why did you bring us out of Egypt? There was plenty of water in Egypt. What are we doing out here, Moses? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I going to do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me, to kill me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take into your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile when it turned to blood, remember? And go, Behold, I am will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb and you shall strike that rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, which is what Psalm 95 was referring to. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see the heart of testing God is the same heart that Jesus condemned the cities in Matthew chapter 11 where Ian read from. They had seen the mighty works of God and yet they doubted, they denied, they persisted in unbelief. That's the spirit of testing God. It's the spirit that ignores and neglects all of the good things God has done for us. And when hard times come, times of rephidim come, instead of trusting God, they doubted His goodness towards Him. They doubted His sovereign purposes and will in their lives. They were consumed with their own will, with their own desires, with their own passions instead of with his glorious purposes in them and through them. And so they quarrelled with Moses, they grumbled against Moses, they grumbled against God. They grumbled against God's purpose to bring them out and give them salvation. Why why did you save us, God? Why did you bring us along this road into the wilderness? Just because of some promised land? Come on, can't be worth it, right? Now tell me you've never felt that way in your life when you ran into a hard place and bore up your cross in this world and fulfilled the words of Scripture that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God and we're complaining and we're grumbling and we're bickering because God, if you love me, why would you let me go through this? Heaven can't be worth it, right? So, they were testing God's patience and in doing it, they were provoking, they were inviting God's anger. So testing God then is to express and to manifest this spirit of unbelief towards the God who has done so much for us in ways that rebel against the reality of who He is and against Him as our good and faithful God and Father. And so it's a serious thing, right? See, think Ananias and Sapphira. Moses here changes the name of of the place called Rephidim. Rephidim just means a place to camp. He renames it with the words Massah and Meribah because Meribah means quarreling, which is what they did with Moses and with God. And Massah means testing because in their self-willed, quarrelsome, discontented, grumbling hearts, they put God to the test. But even still, how did God respond? God was merciful, wasn't He? Just like Jesus' words after condemning those places in Judea and Samaria that had seen the mighty works of God on display and responded with unbelief and rejected Christ, then Jesus says, Come unto Me and I will give you rest. Take all of the burden of all of your sin and all of your guilt and all of your shame and trust me. Believe in me and I will give you rest from it all. Mercy. And here, Exodus 17, the people grumble and put God to the test and and invite and provoke His wrath. And what does He do? He gives them water out of a rock. He meets their need in spite of their self-willed, grumbling, testing spirit. God provided And he did it in a way that proved to them that his goodness transcended their deserving. And that his purposes transcended their expectations. Which is why in God's great wisdom and in God's great mercy, God very often is pleased to bring us to Rephidim. In our lives, right? To the places that are dry to the seasons that are hard and uncertain and painful in order to expose the self-willed spirit in us and in order to meet us in that place with sovereign mercy and prove to us His fatherly goodness and wisdom and to train us to trust Him instead of testing Him. God sovereignly ordains Rephidim places for our lives to teach us to cast our cares on Him instead of doubting Him and freaking out and grumbling and moping around and complaining and being discontent. To teach us to be confident that He cares for us instead of assuming that He doesn't or that He's forsaken us or that He's punishing us or that he's being unfair to us. That's why God ordains Rephidim in your life. Almost every week after I say things like this in a sermon, at least one or two people come up to me and say afterwards something like this. They say, hey, were you thinking about me when you said that? It seemed like that passage was speaking directly to me. Just let me assure you that every time I say things like this, Every time I draw out application from God's Word that deals with specific sin in our lives, it's because as I'm studying the Word of God all week, it's speaking those things directly to me. I'm thinking about me, not you. It's doing its job in my heart as the double-edged sword that it is and exposing all the fleshly, self-willed, grumbling discontentment in my own heart. And so I see the double edged sword of God's word as a merciful scalpel in the sovereign hands of the great physician as he wisely and faithfully exposes and excises the sin that remains in me, in us. And if it's doing that in your heart too, then I praise God for it with you. Now, back to Acts 15. How were the party of the Pharisees putting God to the test in a similar way to the Israelites in Rephidim? Back to Acts 15. I think the answer is pretty clear, right? In Rephidim, the people doubted God's goodness, doubted God's ability, doubted God's mercy, doubted God's faithfulness to supply their needs, to give them water in the wilderness, even though God had been so faithfully good in so many and profound ways already to them. In Jerusalem, in Acts 15, Peter had recounted how God had so mercifully Provided for the Gentiles, cleansed the Gentiles, given salvation freely to the Gentiles, apart from physical circumcision, apart from dietary laws, apart from good works, freely redeemed them and given them everlasting life through faith in Jesus alone. And yet, these Pharisees were doubting God in all those ways. Doubting His goodness, doubting His mercy, doubting His purposes, doubting His word, doubting His divine freedom to free the Gentiles from sin and death in whatever way He willed to do it. And the specific way that they they manifested this spirit of putting God to the test, the particular thing that they did was, Peter says there in verse 10 of Acts 15, they placed a yoke on the necks of the disciples. God freed them and you would enslave them again. He led them out of Egypt and you would drag them back? He gave them life and you want to put this thing on their necks that weighs them down. They placed a yoke on the neck of the disciples, the Gentile disciples. The word yoke, Y-O-K-E, not Y-O-L-K, like an egg yoke. Peter's not saying that they poured egg yolk on the Gentiles necks. I mean, that wouldn't be a very nice thing to do by itself. But what they actually did was a whole lot worse. Y-O-K-E is a different word. The the Greek word that Peter uses comes from a word that means to, to join two things together. And one of the things that it came to refer to in actual practice, in actual life, was the big piece of wood that was laid across the necks of two oxen, right a, a big, heavy, thick wooden beam with two notches cut out so that it would fit around their necks. And you put that on their necks together and then you'd strap a plow to it so that they could walk in step together and with their combined strength pull that plow through a field. And that piece of wood, that yoke was massive and heavy, a couple hundred pounds. And it's that, that weightiness, that burdensomeness that Peter's referring to here in this context. And that's how it had come to, come to be thought of kind of colloquially, idiomatically, in the ancient world and even still in some places of the world today. The, the yoke of the oxen came to symbolize, came to signify servitude, slavery, bondage and a heavy, unbearable burden. And that's what Peter is saying that the party of the Pharisees are doing to the Gentile disciples of Jesus Christ. They're enslaving them just as cruelly as the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites in Egypt. They're saddling them with an impossibly heavy burden that they cannot ever hope to bear. How? By making their eternal salvation, their spiritual cleansing, their acceptance by God, contingent on what they could do to merit it, to be deserving of it on their own merits. In Luke's Gospel, Luke wrote about Jesus' own words to the Pharisees, who insisted that being clean before God, being acceptable in God's sight, required that people not only perfectly conform to the laws that God reveals in Scripture, but also all those extra laws that they concocted as hedges around the law. And Jesus said, Woe to you, our English translation says, lawyers, woe to you, lawyers. Think legalists. They were experts in the law, but in all the wrong legalistic ways. Woe to you lawyers and legalists, for you load people down with burdens that are too hard for them to bear, and you yourself could not touch these burdens with one of your fingers. You hear that? The burden of meriting God's favor by human performance is too hard for anyone to bear, Jesus himself says. It's so impossibly hard that they themselves, the Pharisees, and all of the Israelites that came before them in the Old Covenant, in all of their outward compliance, they couldn't even touch that burden. Because again, God knows the heart. And their hearts, like every human heart that's born in sin, full of self-righteous hypocrisy, sinful pride, and loveless greed, which renders all of their best outward works worthless in God's sight. Filthy, defiled rags, not robes of true righteousness. It's, it's like laying the 300-pound ox yoke on your pinky finger and, and thinking that you can lift it only infinitely worse. So there was no possible way that the pharisees that the old testament israelites that any human being could ever live up to the standards that the pharisees were placing on other people there was no way that they could do it there was no way that the pharisees themselves could bear the great burden that they were laying on everyone else that's why they're hypocrites And that's what Peter's saying here too. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We couldn't do what you're asking them to do. We couldn't merit it. And so see, the whole point of the law of the Old Testament had been radically misunderstood by the Pharisees. The whole point of the law of the Old Testament was to reveal what real holiness and righteousness is in terms of the character and nature and will of God. But the point of doing that was not to prop it up like a ladder that people could use to climb up into heaven by their own merits, by their own works, efforts. The purpose of God's law is to reveal to us what God's holiness and righteousness are and then to reveal the contrast of our sinfulness, our inability to do anything about God's law that pleases Him. It's to show us the impossibility of our being holy like God is holy. It's to show us our need of being cleansed and justified and forgiven by God. Not to show us how to be good enough for God to approve of in our own selves. But to show us, in fact, how desperately wicked we really are. And how desperately we need a savior who bleeds for our sins and clothes us with his own righteousness. Because ours will never ever be good enough. And then when people are justified, when people are forgiven, when people are cleansed by grace alone, when people are given new life and new hearts through faith in Jesus, then God's law shows us the way in which we can love God, we can honor God, we can glorify God by walking in step with His righteousness and doing what pleases Him, which His life-transforming grace empowers us to do. But the Pharisees, in the arrogance of their hard hearts, they misunderstood. They thought that their hearts were good enough to be able to be holy like God is holy. They thought that the outside of the cup was what really mattered. And they ignored how filthy and and wretched the law actually exposed their hearts to be. And so they ignored how desperately they needed a Savior like Jesus, and so they completely misunderstood the gospel. And in doing that, and in insisting that people could and must make themselves clean enough for God's approval by their own self-righteous works, see, they were hanging this impossibly heavy yoke around their necks. They put a literally unbearable burden on them. They enslaved them, just like the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt, to a ruthless, merciless taskmaster of legalism one that would always require what people could never possibly perform and then flog them to eternal death and damnation when they couldn't meet the eternal standards of god's perfect holiness instead of saying you'll never ever do it so go to jesus his his yoke is easy his burden is light He's kind. He's merciful. He's gentle. He will give you rest. Now I, I know many of you have experienced, maybe still do, the cruelty and the oppression and the impossible burden of legalism. Either inflicted on you by others or self-inflicted always assuming that God's pleasure with you depends on your performance instead of seeing yourself in Christ. Always worried that the presence of sin in your life must mean the absence of God's saving grace. Always being told either by your tortured conscience or by modern day Pharisees who are around you, that if you experience fleshly temptation, if you struggle with sinful passion, if you find yourself, like Paul in Romans 7, doing the things you hate and hating the things that you do, that at best you're a carnal Christian, and that at worst, and maybe more probably, you have good cause to question whether you're really a Christian at all. And you live under that yoke, that burden, that oppressive, slavish, legalistic fear. And if that's true, hear Peter's words loud and clear in your tormented soul. Verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Not by this yoke, but by His. This quote I put in your bulletin by Sinclair Ferguson, I think sums it up. When I know that Christ is the one real sacrifice for my sins, that His work on my behalf has been accepted by God, and that He is my heavenly intercessor, then His blood is is the antidote to the poison of the voices that echo in my conscience condemning me for my many failures. Indeed, Christ's shed blood chokes those voices into silence. Amen? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Just as everyone will who will ever be saved from sin and eternal condemnation. Not by... Physical circumcision, but by God mercifully circumcising the heart, as Paul says in Romans 2. Not by good works that we do to earn God's favor by our merits, but by the work of Christ that is finished and the merits that He has accomplished for us. Not by a righteousness that comes from keeping the law ourselves, but by the righteousness that comes from God that is His own righteousness accounted to us through faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself up for us. Hear Paul's voice loud and clear in his answer to his own tormented soul crying out, wretched man that I am, when he sees his sin, who's going to deliver me from this body of death, from this, this flesh, right? My soul has been redeemed, my heart has been made new, but I live still in this body that is not yet made immortal. It's still corrupt. And sin still remains in it. Who's going to deliver me from it because I keep wrestling with all this sin and I hate it. What do I do? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind but with my flesh I serve the law of sin and there is therefore now no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The yoke is gone. And knowing that you've been set free by the gift of God's free saving grace, then here Paul's admonition to you as he admonished the Christians in the churches in Galatia. Galatians 5, verse 1, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't ever submit again to the yoke of slavery. Never let anyone put that tortuous yoke of legalism on your neck and certainly don't put it on your own neck. Hear the words of Martin Luther in a letter that he wrote to a friend whose conscience was so burdened by the sin that remained in him, that he constantly doubted the love of God for him. And so Luther wrote this to his dear friend. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, now just pause there and know this, that if you're hearing a voice in your head say, because of my sin, I deserve death and hell, And the love of God cannot keep me from it. That that voice is the devil's voice, not the Lord's voice. So Luther said to his friend, Philip, when you, or when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, here's what you tell the devil. I admit that I deserve death and hell, what of it? For I know the one who suffered and made full satisfaction on my behalf, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he is the Son of God, and where he is, there shall I be also. Because that's what God says. Yes, you deserve death and hell, but you are in Christ, washed by his blood robed in His righteousness, and wherever He is, there will you be also. And as I see Him, so I see you. It's exactly right. It's exactly what Peter means here in Acts 15, verse 11, where he says that everyone who is saved is saved by grace, not by the yoke and the burden of slavery, of, of legalistically having to earn salvation, because Jesus Christ, Son of God, made perfect satisfaction on your behalf. Paid the full price for all our sins. Satisfied all of God's wrath against all of our sin by shedding His precious blood on the cross. And satisfied all of God's demands for perfect holiness and righteousness by His own perfect spotless obedience. Which is credited to us through faith alone. And so as one who's been washed by His blood, as one who is robed in His righteousness, wherever Jesus is, there shall I be also. And Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father in the eternal glories of heaven, and there shall I be also in Him. Because in God's perfect wisdom and mercy and justice and love, He chose to treat Jesus as I deserved to be treated Because of my sin. So that in turn he could treat me as only Jesus deserves in the fullness of his righteousness. The yoke of legalism and insisting that salvation depends on your righteous merit is an impossible yoke for any human being to bear. God did not bring the Israelites to the Red Sea and say, okay, get out a straw and suck all the water out of it and go across to your safety. He parted the waters for them. God does not put this yoke on your neck and say, I will not accept you unless you have a righteousness of your own. He says, I accept you fully because you are robed in the righteousness of my Son. The yoke of legalism is impossible for any human being to bear and our consciences know it. Salvation comes by the grace of God alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone who perfectly obeyed, who suffered and died to satisfy all of God's wrath against all of our sin and set us free forever from the law of sin and death and from the wrath of God and from all guilt and all shame and all fear. And so go back to those words of Jesus in Matthew 11 that Ian read just before the sermon. Remember? Come to me, all who labor, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What are they weary with? What are they, what are they laden down with as Jesus says, come? It's not loneliness and sorrow and despair and miserable circumstances in this life. It's not, that's not what Jesus has in mind at all. He's saying to people who are laden with sin. Who have this burden upon their lives of guilt and shame before God. That earns them everlasting condemnation. He's saying to them don't try to lift that yoke off your neck by yourself. Come to me. Come to me and I'll take it for you. I'll bear it for you. And I'll give you rest. You'll never Find rest on your own by submitting to the yoke of legalistic slavery. And so Jesus says, I'll take it. And then you take my yoke upon upon you. And and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. and, And if you come to me and learn from me, you will find rest for your souls. Because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The yoke of legalism is crushingly enslaving but Jesus says mine is easy mine is light Christians our God is not a ruthless taskmaster our God demands holiness perfect holiness be ye holy as I am holy holiness but our God is mercy and wants to give us rest And in the person of Jesus who paid it all, who took all the sin that we have, who gave us all that he is, who gave us all that he has, and whose blood and righteousness are the only foundation of hope, in him God has given us rest. And so today, as you meditate on the great good news of this gospel truth, be sure that you are not putting God to the test. Either by neglecting the reality of God's eternal goodness to you, both in the daily mercies that He showers on you that are new every morning, that He gives to you and lavishes on you all the time, and especially in His eternal mercy towards you in Christ Jesus, don't don't neglect that. Don't minimize that. And go, well, you know what? That's that's fine and all, that was nice and all, but what what's really hard is whatever's going on in your life right now. Because you know what? Jesus' grace and the glory that it promises you makes all of these sufferings unworthy to even be mentioned. Don't neglect the reality of God's mercy by doubting His goodness and stumbling back into this grumbling, pouting kind of discontentment like the Israelites did at Rephidim. And surely don't put God to the test like the party of the Pharisees did by by denying the fullness and the freedom of God's grace towards other people and then burdening them with a yoke that God has set them free from. Pointing out all their guilt without pointing out all of God's grace. Looking down your nose and condemning when Jesus says, I don't condemn. Questioning the salvation and demanding that they earn what God freely gives. Don't do that. And be sure that having been set free by the grace of Jesus, you don't submit yourself any longer to the yoke of legalistic bondage. Always doubting God's great unconditional love for you because you think you don't deserve it. Of course, you don't deserve it. That's what makes it unconditional love. That's what makes it grace. That's what makes it mercy. None of those are deserved. And the fact that none of them are deserved is what makes you His. And be sure that you are constantly abiding in that great gospel rest that God has freely given to you, and in the One who gives it to you. Ask yourself, are you, am I more focused on the things of this world, on my own desires, on my own troubles then i am on god and on his grace then if i am i will always feel the burden of temptation and discouragement and discontentment am i more focused on my own sin than i am on his grace then I will always be weighed down with the burden of guilt and shame and fear and doubt. For every look itself, right? Take ten looks at Christ. So be sure you're doing it. Taking the ten looks and not just saying it as a mantra. Be sure whether you're facing temptation to sin or whether you're facing shame because you've yielded and have sinned. Be sure that you're coming to Jesus and meditating on His gentle, loving, merciful Spirit and contemplating the great depths of His humble, lowly, self-sacrificing, loving heart. The one who took all your burden and wants you to rest. Be sure that you're preaching the Gospel to yourself all the time so that you can rest in Christ and not be under that blistering burden of guilt and shame and, and legalistic performance. And so that then you can be filled with confidence and, and with gratitude and with love for Him who died to give you this rest. Because that gratitude and confidence and love is the rich soil out of which real obedience and holiness and righteousness sprouts and grows and thrives for the glory of God. And that's what we're going to look at next week. Be sure you're coming to Jesus and communing with Jesus regularly and constantly as the one who loved you and gave His life for you. Come, Christian, constantly come and rest in Him. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how desperately we need to know the gentle, lowly heart of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied Himself and became the form of a servant for us and devoted Himself to the obedience of God to such an extent that He even went to the cross where He bore our sins and forsook the shame so that He could give us rest. Father, help us rest in Him. Help us be confident in Him. Help us be consumed with gratitude and love for Him. Help His grace in all of the actual fullness of its weight far outweigh all of the sufferings of this world and all of the troubles of our lives, and fill us with the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, that we might persevere, that we might endure, that we might grow, that we might thrive, that we might be fruitful in holiness and obedience for the sake of Your glory and for Your kingdom. Father, we love You, and we praise You, and we drink deeply from the cup of grace that overflows in our lives. And we give you thanks for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, page 12, and let's respond to this truth of God by singing that we are confident that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's sing.